1: When Arwen had first taken ill with dream sickness, it had come on slowly, but an abundance of naps had eventually ended in her shaving the neighbour's Maltese shih tzu and knitting its fur into a traditional Inuit hat. From there, things went downhill fast. They had no family in the city. It was just the two of them. In her waking moments, Arwen was terrified to her bones that she would fall asleep forever and that Trilby would be left to fend for herself, or worse, taken away. And so it was decided that before things became more dire, they must flee. Yes, yes, you will have your own ideas on the merit of their plan. You will say, where is Trilby's father? Why can't she stay with a friend? Why don't they borrow my tent? But all these questions have unsatisfying answers. The truth is, other people's plans always appear flawed. And one of these plans' large flaws was that it left Trilby to deal with everything while her mother mumbled something about jellyfish pie.
0: Kate Temple is in the dangerous business of writing books for children. Kate has written more than 20 books with her writing partner, Joel Temple, including the Underdog series, the Alice Tooley series and the Bin Chicken series. When she's not writing, Kate enjoys eating cake and so do the characters in her first solo book, The Dangerous Business of Being Trilby Moffat. Are you there, Kate Temple? Yes, hello. Kate the dangerous business of being Trilby Moffat made me laugh even when I wasn't supposed to. How do you keep straight face when you're writing?
1: I think if you you can start laughing when you're writing, you're definitely onto a good thing. And and I um, I'm very pleased when I can laugh at my own writing. And uh, comedy is a really important thing. And when I was writing this book, The Dangerous Business of Being Trilby Moffat. I was particularly focused on um, comedy because I know when you a lot of kids uh, find a lot of humor in junior fiction and it can be tricky to find those comedy moments in middle grade. And so what I really wanted to do was make sure that this was a sort of a rollicking ride. It was full of adventure and it was full of fast paced action, but there was also these moments of hilarity. And a lot of my favorite Books in this kind of genre have that kind of comedy. I, I love Lemony Snicket. It's just got that undercurrent of uh, humour. Even older things like, uh, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, as a child, I, I just delighted in those books. And and Neil Gaiman as well. You know, they've just got this, this rich vein of comedy. So humour just is so engaging, particularly for children. And uh, this is a book that is designed to be a really a pleasurable thing.
0: Well, I don't think there's a single page where I didn't laugh, but (laughs) let's talk about Chilby Moffat herself. Who is Chilby Moffat and why is being Chilby Moffat such a dangerous business?
1: Oh, she gets really thrown in the deep end. You know, she's such a she's such a nice, level headed, um, clever girl. Um, Twelve years old. One of the things that I really like about Trilby is this combination between being anxious and brave. And uh, she has uh, terrible things that go on in in her world. She's thrown into this situation where a man in a top hat is trying to kill her while she's promoted to the most important job in time, and she has to really make some big decisions and do some brave stuff and daring stuff. And I really like that, you know, you can experience her fear and anxiety as she goes through these, uh, this, this journey, some of it, you know, before she meets her friends, she has to do alone. You know, that's what bravery is and I I love that in kids and I see that all the time uh, with my um, work when I go and visit kids at schools and, and my own children and it's something I really admire about them is that they are so brave and there are many instances where they are brave. So that that was really taken from that experience I have with kids.
0: From reading Chilby Moffat, I get the impression you have two favourite things, words and cake.
1: Yeah. I do like cake. Uh, what's not to like? What's not to like when it comes to cake? Uh, I can't say that I'm a fabulous baker, but I, I don't mind trying my hand at it. Uh, but I'm certainly a fabulous cake eater. I, I would say that that would be, um, I'd get definitely get the badge for that. But I look, I do love words. And this is a book that really combines those two pleasures. Uh, and what I think they have in common is pleasure. And reading should be a really pleasurable thing, uh, particularly for kids. I feel like that trope of having this cake throughout the book was something that I connected with because it's such a rich thing, Kate. You know, there's so many different kinds of cake. Kids are great at baking cakes, you know, and to have an island where that is your national food and that is everything that anyone is ever eating uh, I thought it was a terrific idea, but also they're a great conduit for history, and there 's all this history in this book I mean we haven 't just started eating cake it's been going on since forever, and I love doing all the research about cake for this book, so finding ancient roman cakes and and looking at what the first cakes were, and you know all of that sort of stuff also finds its way into this book as they they make cakes throughout time. Have you thought about
0: combining those two loves, perhaps a word cake
1: oh. No, I haven't. But I I will admit that when I was maybe 10, my mother actually made me the typewriter cake from the Women's Weekly Birthday Cake book. So I feel like she she got a jump on that. Uh, that was pretty exciting to get the, uh, you know, the, the, the little smitey letters. And, yeah, that was I think she was up until about 3 o'clock making me the typewriter, the typewriter <laughs> cake.
0: So that's where it all began.
1: It did. In hindsight, I didn't know what, what I, my sister got the piano cake.
0: According to the taxi driver uh, who takes them to the Lost in Time Antique Shop, the Lost in Time Antique Shop doesn't exist. So how could I possibly find my way there?
1: Oh, look, the Lost in Time Antique Shop is a bit of a mystery. Uh, It is only open for one minute on a Thursday and two minutes on a Friday. So even if you do find it, chances are you won't be able to find it during opening hours. It is not on any map and... That's a bit of a mystery because uh it really is a very important place. It is situated on the edge of a great lake which is not, also not on any maps. And that lake is actually the sea of time. So it is the closest place to the edge of time. So it's a it's a it's a pretty um mysterious and special spot the antique shop.
0: Mm, I hope there's not a queue when I get there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, she's got some incredible treasures in there. That was also a lot of fun, trawling through, um, you know, auction sites and and doing the research for that and thinking of, you know, what are all these trinkets that we accumulate in our house that are sort of our heirlooms from past generations and, uh, you know, the, these special things and where do they come from and what makes them special?
0: I did wonder whether Thumbelina Mintz, who's the owner of the Lost in Time antique shop, was really a hoarder.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, she's sort of she's sort of everybody's hoarder. She's she's hoarding for me. She's hoarding for you. She's she's she has all our treasures in her shop.
0: Another interesting character is Benjamin the thylacine. What's your fascination with thylacines? Aren't they extinct?
1: I absolutely adore thylacine. Um, there's a uh, taxidermied one at Sydney University that I've visited in their museum a number of times just an extraordinary creature and it's such a it's such an inspiring creature and it's such a sad story you know to sort of do the research on the journey and the demise of this beautiful creature was uh, very interesting for me and Benjamin the name is actually the name of the last thylacine, the one that died in captivity in Hobart zoo that that is the his name and so I took that story of Benjamin the last thylacine and I imagined, what would happen if instead of dying in that cold and um, concrete cage in, in Hobart in the 30s, uh, if it was actually extracted before that happened, you know, through this kind of um, rift in time? And I imagined that the first thing that Benjamin the thylacine would do is brush up on his uh, law knowledge and then i thought let, let's just go to town on that why why stop with one law degree when you're a extinct thylacine you're the last one of your kind why not get a law degree from as many different time periods as you can you know arm yourself with that knowledge so that uh you make yourself invaluable and you will not end up in the same predicament again so that was kind of the inspiration uh I don't know a great deal about law. I didn't study it, so my brother is a barrister, and uh, I absolutely pestered him with questions about the law constantly while I was writing this book. So um, he didn't charge me in increments, which was good.
0: Barristers are quite expensive too, so
1: <laughs> I would ring him with ridiculous legal questions as well. You know, about thirteenth century law. So like, I don't know anything about that. I said, but. But if you had to answer, like if that, what would you do? What would you say? So, uh, yeah, so I had a lot of fun um, asking wild questions about antique laws to him that he had no particular knowledge of, but, you know, I had high expectations.
0: I'd like to introduce you to young podcaster and avid reader Grace Grenfell. Grace, meet Kate. Kate, meet Grace.
2: Hello, Grace. Hi. Kate, I really enjoyed your book. I have a few questions for you. Thanks, Grace. How did you create such a magical story? Sorry, I mean legal document.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you, Grace. Yes, it, it does claim to be a legal document. And the reason I wanted it to be a legal document is because what happens in this story is so dangerous and diabolical that it needs to be written down legally so that it prevents it from happening ever again. That's the motivation behind the narrator putting this all down.
2: Is dream sickness a real sickness? I would hate to have it. No, no. I hope it's not a real
1: sickness. It's definitely not a real sickness. Uh, But you know what I was thinking? I was wondering, why does illness always have to be so bad? I mean, no one ever says, oh, I caught the most amazing cold. No one ever says, oh, you know, I had this fabulous virus. You really should try it. And I thought, what if it was actually good or interesting or weird to get sick you know and that's why I came up with this dream sickness I thought let's let's reinvent what it is to be sick it doesn't exist but you know I'd probably prefer to catch this in a lot of things.
2: Why did you make the cats so grumpy? My cats are grumpy sometimes wanting food or to be laid outside. Oh they are some smug
1: cats aren't they they are native to the island outside time all those cats and uh, they're fluffy and gorgeous but Goodness, they are so rude. They do all the ill-mannered things you're not supposed to do. They mock and mimic and they also run the public transport system. So uh, you, there's no getting around them.
2: Do you really think children would be good in the time guilds? We're always being told to slow down or hurry up.
1: All children would be fantastic in the Time Guild. The one difference that these kids have, though, is that they're very ancient children. So they've got a few years on most kids. So, I mean, the girl from Pompeii is over 2,000-plus years old. Um, You know, the boy from Hiroshima, he came in 1945. So these are kids who are 12, but they've been 12 for a very, 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 very long time. So imagine the kind of things you might be able to learn to do you know, you'd be able to speak so many languages. You'd be able to probably build a, an antique boat by hand. They have many, many skills, but they're also still 12.
0: Imagine the cake recipes.
1: Oh, they're incredible bakers. I mean, the, the banquets of cake they put on are off the charts. The eating of cake took place in a bright room with round windows off the main workshop. The room was oddly shaped. Iced with wallpaper of apples and cherries, in the centre of the room sat an antique round table containing an outrageous display of cakes. Orange and poppy seed, lemon polenta, red velvet, chocolate ripple, and marble cake. Usually a spread like this means one thing, a party, a celebration, a festivity. In this case, it meant lunch. In other words, this was standard. Cake was the only thing anyone appeared to eat here you might be thinking that a diet of pure cake would lead to a number of serious health problems, like high blood sugar or tooth rot. Normally, you would be right. But as the child named Maisie, a girl with fuzzy red hair and tartan pants who claimed to be 10 years old and yet born in 1634, explained, you need time for a tooth to rot. And there was none of that here. As a result, cake was on the menu day and night.
2: Do you now know how time really works?
1: Oh, do I know how time really works? I do, but I'm I'm not allowed, I'm not at liberty to reveal it.
2: Is Benny the narrator the main character or is Trilby the narrator really made me laugh?
1: (laughs) No, Trilby is definitely the main character. This is her story, but uh, she has this fantastic narrator and what's kind of, Interesting is that the narrator, Benjamin the Phylacine, uh is not just a narrator. He's also a character in the book. So it beca- he sort of becomes her mentor in a lot of ways. And so there's this kind of nice little relationship that's going on between Trilby and the narrator, which, uh, yeah, was, was kind of uh, interesting to write, a narrator who was also the character who ends up in the story in a lot of ways.
2: Have you ever worked in a mailroom? It sounds horrible. Oh, uh, I haven't
1: actually worked in a mailroom. I've worked, actually, I have worked in a mailroom. I realise that now. i worked in an office once where I did one time work down in a mailroom for a very short amount of time. I think I was helping someone. Look, the mailroom that I worked in was actually very nice. I mean, we just sat down there, had a cup of tea, you know, sorted some papers. It was actually quite pleasant. But what I wanted to imagine uh, in the organisation that administers time, which are my baddies, is that this was absolutely the most monotonous and awful job that you could ever have. Their mail room is the worst mail room. The mail never ends. Uh, it's endless. There are no breaks. And Trilby, well, she gets stuck there, but she doesn't of her own accord. She, she puts herself there for a reason um, because she has to hatch a plan that requires her to go and live down there.
2: Can you tell me anything about what happens next? Does Arwen get better and Chilby get to go home?
1: Oh, that's a tricky one, Grace. Look, I can't reveal everything, but uh, it certainly does end on a cliffhanger, doesn't it? We have some big questions at the end. What I can tell you is that The Dangerous Business of Being Chilby Moffat is the first book in a series, so there will definitely be a second book. I've actually
2: written it. Thanks, Kate, for answering my questions. Ah, Thanks so much for having me.
0: Grace Grenfell and I have been talking to Kate Temple about her first solo book, The Dangerous Business of Being Trilby Moffat. It's published by Hachette and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.